Welcome to the Progress Texas Happy Hour. Welcome to the Progress Texas Happy Hour. I'm Progress Texas Podcasting Director Chris Mosier. And I'm Progress Texas Digital Intern Haley Smith. Some call it silly season, the pre-primary period in any given election year when members of both parties square off against each other for the right to represent their entire party in the upcoming general election. Some of these fights are civil, some of these are not so much. Here at Progress Texas, we think a healthy primary season is a good thing as it helps our candidates refine their positions and test their strategies as they prepare to take on Republican opponents in the real fight. And we're committed to cutting through the clutter and making some educated and careful calls about select important races with an eye to locating the most qualified candidates who truly represent the best option for Texas progressive voters. That's right. Now, by no means do we intend or expect our endorsements to end your consideration of other candidates in these races. We simply look to highlight those that our board and our staff have determined are deserving of our backing as an organization. We encourage you to judge the entire field of candidates for yourself, and we also commit to backing the most progressive candidates who prevail in the primary, endorsed by us or not. And so, settle in for a brief introduction to our five newest Progress Texas endorsees. State Representative Julie Johnson, running for Congressional District 32. Michelle Vallejo, running for Congressional District 15. Sam Epler, running for Congressional District 24. Bill Birch, who's running in the statewide race for a seat on the Texas Railroad Commission. And finally, Lauren Ashley Simmons, who's actually challenging an incumbent Democrat in the Texas House in District 146. Progress Texas is proud to endorse State Representative Julie Johnson for Texas's 32nd Congressional District. In the highly contested race for Colin Allred's seat with several strong candidates, Johnson's record as a lawyer and lawmaker stands out, championing women, workers, and LGBTQ Texans. Johnson turned House District 115 red to blue back in 2018 and has the experience to turn the tables in Washington, D.C. to make the government work for us on reproductive justice, gun violence protection, and affordable health care. Representative Julie Johnson, welcome to the pod. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. We're so happy to have you. Um, let's just start with a quick introduction. Give us the campaign elevator pitch. <laughs> well, um, Julie Johnson, uh, running uh, currently a state representative, running for Congress to represent you in CD32. Uh, you know, I ser- currently serve in the state legislature. I'm in my third term. Focus a lot on health care policy, uh, women's health. I'm vice chair of the Women's Health Caucus a strong advocate for public education, gun rights, and all the things that Democrats care about. I think that what separates me from the field in this race is that the, I'm the only one that's actually won a competitive general election that has any legislative experience at all. And I think the times that we are facing requires that. I don't think Congress is necessarily the entry point to politics. And I've learned a lot in the Texas legislature, both offensive and defensive. I've killed a lot of bills. I've passed a lot of bills. And I think that experience will prepare me, has prepared me to be able to jump in this job ready to go day one. And I don't have to go spend two two years learning how to do it. That actually leads to our first question here. Uh, Outside of uh, State Senator Gutierrez, who's running against Colin Allred uh, for the chance to represent Texas Democrats against Ted Cruz, uh, you're the only currently sitting state lawmaker who we've endorsed so far this year. 
Uh, elaborate a bit on what you just mentioned. How does that experience uh, in the in the Texas legislature set you apart from the several and actually quite solid federal Democrats who are running in this race? Well, I, I think that experience matters. You know, I've really learned how to do things in the Texas legislature. I've learned um, a lot of the rules, the procedures. Uh, they're they're very complicated, and it takes a while to learn that. And my legal background certainly gave me an edge on that as well. But I've also passed a lot of important policy pieces in terms of the healthcare space. Um, criminal justice space. I, I passed a really important bill um, elevating criminal penalties for uh, physicians that abuse their patients and take advantage of that physician-patient relationship. I overhauled the Texas Medical Board, uh, passed their survivor's benefits bill for Dallas police and fire, and um, a pretty important prior authorization bill as well. I think, you know, it's just that you learn how to do this job. And it's hard. Um, most people don't uh, have a profession and they're they're good at that, that thing, but you don't necessarily appreciate school finance and our energy grid, the complexities of that and transportation and toll road financing and, and the complexities of Medicaid expansion and, and all the issues um, that are out there. And I've spent the last three legislative sessions and a lot of special sessions um, working on these issues on voting rights and, and all the things that are at critical mass in our country right now. And, and so I think that just uniquely positions me to be ready to go. And I think that's why I have so much support in this race. That's awesome. Um, Texas 32 is considered a safe Democratic district. So winning the primary is a huge step toward actually finding yourself in the U.S. House. So tell us what you expect from that job, considering the chaos we've seen in that body as of late. Well, you know, there's no question that our uh, national uh, Congress is dysfunctional. But I would argue the same is true for the Texas legislature. I mean, the same forces that are making Republicans um, lose their minds, very difficult to work with, have lost their perspective on good policy that affects the general population. The same holds true in Texas and in D.C. And I would argue that much of what has happened to D.C. really genesis is in Texas. And, you know, it, a lot of the hate towards the LGBT community, for example, the abortion ban, all of that started here. And I think what that gives me is the perspective to go to D.C., scream from the mountaintop of what it is like to be in a deep red state, where this stuff originates and how important it is for federal action to happen on the Equality Act, on women's reproductive health, on voting rights, all of those things. You know, I was in D.C. on a quorum break fighting for our voting rights because it all starts here in Texas. And, you know, in conversations that I've had with different national organizations, one of the things that really separates me from a lot of Democrats is most Democrats are from safe blue states. They have access to abortion care. They, their LGBT community isn't uh, the target of, of every political um, situation. You know, they can vote, they can online register to vote. They're not under this assault. And so they don't appreciate just how dire it is in our state and other states like Texas. Uh, but I provide that voice. I provide that perspective, having served in the Texas legislature, served along with um, Republicans that share this ideology that a lot of our national Republicans share. And um, and I'm able to give a lot of witness and voice to that and, and how I have managed to navigate that successfully in the Texas legislature to pass quite a few bills. Representative Johnson, tell us uh, your views kind of on the team sport of democratic sort of politics in Texas in terms of what you see as your obligation or the obligation of other prominent Democrats to help others who are running in uh, races that perhaps might be more difficult than the one that you're running in. Well, I think, you know, Democrats have got to 
for us to start winning general elections, we have to do two things. We have to elevate our bench, you know, move up people who are experienced into higher levels, create opportunities for new, young, talented folks to come in behind us and, and, and mentor. You know, I am mentoring many women candidates who are running for the state house and they have my cell phones. They want to talk through issues. They want to talk through voting records. And I think more um, people need to do that. Maybe that's being a woman. We're happy that we're always happy to help, but uh, there's that. And so also I have a history of elevating other people on the ballot. Um, I've been blessed to be able to be able to be a successful fundraiser and I have donated funds to candidates all, all across the ballot in the last several election cycles to help my peers help raise fund funds. I invite them to my fundraisers. I introduce them to donors, try to be a good team player. But one of the things that is the most disturbing fact is out of 150 House seats in the state of Texas, the lowest 15 voter turnout seats are all held by safe Democrats. And that's unacceptable. I have one of the highest voter turnouts in my state race, and we cannot just sit on our laurels because we have a safe race. Democrats have to get engaged, and voters and Democrats have to demand that their democratically elected officials engage in the general election, regardless if they're safe or not, because it takes everyone for us to turn the tides because all of our constituents are negatively impacted by Republicans leading the state. Terrific, terrific answer. Uh, give us any final thoughts you might want to share with uh, Texas progressive voters as we head towards uh, early voting in the primary. Well, it's very important that you engage and vote and that you help you know, articulate the values that we share. And again, elect Democrats who are going to get the job done. You know, in this race, for my race in particular, I'm really trying to win this without a runoff. There's 10 people in it. I think it's unconscionable for us to have to spend the, the vast sums that we'll have to spend on a Democratic runoff, Democratic dollars are so hard to come by, but I'm ahead in the polls. I'm definitely leading in this race. And I mean, obviously we'll spend it if we need to, but to the previous question, I would much rather invest that in the general election. And so, you know, I think Democrats need to be uh, informed. They need to be smart about how they cast their vote. They need to be strategic. So we are putting the, the best people possible so that we can help elevate our bench so that Democrats can come together and unite against our candidate to defeat Ted Cruz. That needs to be mission number one for Democrats in the state. Michelle Vallejo is a small business owner and fierce community advocate from South Texas. In a rematch for Texas 15, she will take back her historically blue district, running on bringing down healthcare costs, securing good paying jobs and a thriving economy and protecting reproductive rights. Michelle Vallejo, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. The House District 15 race is being seen as the most competitive in the state by many, drawing national political attention and funding and a high media profile. Michelle, let's start with that. Tell us about everyone who has joined forces to back you on this campaign so far. Thank you for that question. We are fired up and excited because we have never been stronger to flipping this seat and winning this race for Texas 15. Uh, we have a lot of partners and friends who, are, who have joined our broad coalition because this seat is imperative to winning back the House majority. So it's important not just for South Texas, for the state of Texas, but uh, it's a national priority. So it's very important across the country. And I'm so grateful for all the work we've been able to do, myself and my team, uh, to get us to this place where we are poised and ready to fight. And people on our side include a handful of delegate members here in Texas, including Veronica Essen. 
Escobar, including Congressman Joaquin Castro, as well as Lloyd Doggett and Sylvia Garcia. Uh, but we are also excited to be working with Texas AFT, uh, a handful of other labor friends uh, who are ready to get a champion who um, will fight for our hardworking families above all else. And I know that that is me. Um, but we've also been added to the DCCC's Red to Blue program. I'm actually the first Latina across the country uh, to be added to this program, which means that we are a priority. And I'm a priority candidate to flipping this seat, to winning back the House majority, and working side by side with partners who are ready uh, to get leadership for our community members in the House of Congress. Michelle, this race is a rematch that went to your opponent last time, in part due to her tactics of deception. Uh, flipping this historically Democratic district red. Tell us about Monica De La Cruz and how she misled the voters of your district in order to win, due to her tactics of deception. Uh, flipping this historically Democratic district red. Tell us about Monica De La Cruz and how she misled the voters of your district in order to win. You know, actually, Monica de la Cruz has been the person she's always said she'd be. She said that she was here to finish what Trump started, build the wall, um, and that has been her focus. Um, but really, she has been deceptive in that she's playing games on every single issue, especially when it comes to her voting record in Congress. In her short time, she's made it very clear that she's willing to throw South Texans under the bus when it comes to her own personal political benefit. And when it comes to even border security funding, she's made it very clear that she wants to play games. Uh, it's been multiple times that there have been solutions and funding and resources for our border patrol, for our border region, for border security that she has chosen to say no to because it doesn't serve her far right radical uh, agenda. And so this is why we very much need a leadership in Congress. We need somebody who will take these issues seriously because the needs that we have in South Texas are great and we cannot be ignoring these and neglectful of our people any longer. Very good. Uh, as we've seen lately, and as you've already talked about, Michelle, the razor thin margin in the U.S. House is a major factor in just about everything that body does. And flipping the seat back to blue would be huge in that way. Tell us about the importance for progressive people, not only in Texas, but across the country and really around the world uh, that this race represents. And uh, what do you expect from that job should you win coming up in November? Yeah, so this race is imperative. And I do want to ring the alarm to everybody because we are the only swing seat in Texas that we could flip from red to blue. And we very much have a bullseye on our back in South Texas. Republicans want to claim that this is a clear win for them, but I want to reassure everybody that it is not. So myself and my team, my campaign, when we fight, we win. Uh, last cycle, I did win in Hidalgo County. That is the battleground county to winning Texas. Texas 15 and we want it by 57%. We had low turnout, so we very much need people to come out to vote. Uh, so we need all the help that we could get to connect to our voters to make sure that they know that they have a true option on the ballot come November, especially when it comes to representation in the House. Um, something when it comes to what we are fighting for, every step of the way, every single day, my focus is always on delivering for the hardworking people and families of South Texas. And that's how we're going to lead and we're going to win this seat and how I hope to be a future legislator to make the right decisions and deliver for our families here in South Texas. 
Michelle, healthcare for Texas women is top of mind for Texas progressive voters this election year. And your motivation to run for office is highly personal for you in your late mother's experience. If you don't mind, would you please just tell us that story? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and this is a story that has been hard for me to share, but one that I've grown a muscle to sharing because it truly is a way to bond with people uh, here in South Texas of all backgrounds. Uh, so my mom lived with multiple sclerosis. Her name was Maribel Vallejo Castro, and she lived with multiple sclerosis for 15 years since I was four years old. So my mom pretty much my whole life had lived with a terminal illness. We weren't sure about what her next day was going to look like ever. And many times we didn't have access to the health care that she needed here in South Texas. We had to travel to Houston, to Galveston, uh, to Mexico. And what was so hard was that every time we would come back, she was always worse off than she was when we left. And I know that to this day, those situations and that reality for many South Texas families hasn't gotten better. It's only gotten worse. And so every time I speak to a veteran, for example, every time I speak to a parent, um, every time I speak to a family member that is caring uh, for others in their family, they tell me that they're having trouble, they're struggling, they are worried. Um, and fundamentally, I know that this is how we could help the families of South Texas. And this is why I am driven and committed uh, to delivering greater access to healthcare, especially for people in South Texas, also considering that there are already funds that go to our federal government that the state of Texas chooses not to send to the hands of the people that need it most. I'm gonna make sure that that's not the case as well. That's huge. And we appreciate you sharing that, Michelle. Let's close with a message directly from you to swing voters in your district. Uh, tell us what you'd say to voters who might have chosen to re vote Republican in the last uh, the last chance they voted and who might now be you know, having second thoughts about that decision. What do you say to those folks? Absolutely. So I will say that we just have to see uh, the productivity, or I would argue the lack of productivity of this session's Congress. Uh, we are in the 118th Congress and we are at a historic low in getting anything done that is productive for the people, um, for the American people. And I am a small business owner. I know how to work with people who I have differences with. Um, so I'm looking to get the job done, roll up my sleeves and get to work. Um, this is how we do it at the flea market, my family business. You set differences aside, you get to work because you know at the end of the day, you need to pay those bills and keep those lights on. Um, so this is how we're gonna tackle things um, every step of the way. We're not gonna get distracted, we're gonna get to work. And I'm excited uh, for more people to join our team uh, to get to work with us. Sam Epler is our choice for Texas Congressional District 24 in North Texas. The former math teacher and high school principal is the pro-democracy, economic growth, and public education champion his district needs to be a MAGA extremist incumbent in November. A top priority of his is to provide a good education and a safe school to build a brighter future for everyone in every zip code. Sam Epler, welcome back to the podcast. Hey, Chris. Hey, Haley. Thank you so much. It's great to be here. And I'm absolutely honored to have the Progress Texas endorsement. Thank you so much. Sam, you've been on the podcast before, but let's just start with a quick introduction. Give us your campaign elevator pitch. 
Yeah, thanks for that. Um, I feel like I've done this a million times already, but I'm ready for the next million, hopefully after the primary. Uh, I'm a former math teacher, former high school principal in Dallas ISD. Uh, I'm 27 years old, and the reason that I'm running for Congress is I looked up my congresswoman's voting record. Truly, I logged in, and I was just appalled by what she votes for. And I've always heard that instead of complaining about something, do something about it. So I decided that I would run for office. Um, I'm just running because I think that we need to give voters a different option uh, against extremism. We need to give voters a moderate option and we need to give voters a common sense option. And that's what I'm trying to be. I have a lot of great policy ideas um, and I'm really excited to uh, campaign on them. Sam, as you've alluded to, but let's dive a little deeper here. Uh, Beth Van Dyne is one of those MAGA fringe types that's really easy for progressives to loathe. Uh, just based on her personality. But Sam, tell us in more specific detail about what you were just mentioning, uh, the specific votes, the specific action she has taken. Why is Beth Van Dyne bad for Texas needing replacement? Yeah, thanks for that. You know, her first vote in Congress pretty much tells you everything you need to know about her. Uh, she voted to not certify the presidential election. That was her first vote in Congress when That's she right. was elected in 2020. And then since then, she's tried to defund pretty much every government agency. She's voted to default on our national uh, credit and debt. Um, and she continues to be a really outspoken critic against getting things done. Um, she just was on CNN, you know, attacking the bipartisan Senate border deal. You know, this is a Senate border deal that would have got stuff done right now for our border. It has been supported by um, the Border Patrol unions. Uh, it got 70 votes in the Senate. I mean, John Cornyn, our senior US Senator voted for it. And uh, she's out there attacking it and taking her marching orders um, from Donald Trump. And the only reason that she's taking those orders is because he's decided that it's politically better to not do anything as a country for the next nine months and to not put solutions forward as opposed to getting stuff done for the American people. And to me, that's really upsetting. I don't think politics um, should get in the way of, of delivering real solutions for people. You're so right. And the margins in the U.S. House are so thin that just about everything that happens there does so by a very close vote. So flipping the seat would be huge, not only for Texas, but for progressives nationwide, if not worldwide. Sam, give us your view on how this race is more important than most people might think. Yeah, thanks. You know, Texas, this is where everything happens in America. Texas is the future. Um, and this is like the second most competitive district uh, based on our numbers. And I always like to throw the statistic out there that, you know, this district has more central markets than any congressional district in Texas. I mean, people are kind of sleeping on this district. Um, it's 100% suburban and urban. It represents over 800,000 people uh, in the fastest growing part of our state, which is one of the fastest growing states in America. Um, DFW is soon to be the third largest metro area in America um, to replace Chicago. And I think that these seats matter more because it really is a referendum on what we want the future of our country to be. And there's a lot of people in this, this district that don't want to point to their congresswoman and show their kids and say, hey, that person that's screaming at the State of the Union, that's our congresswoman. Um, and so that's that's what we're that's what I'm running on. And I'm, I'm really excited uh, for the for the race ahead. Very cool, Sam. Uh, to close, give us a bit on your background as an educator. You've been a math teacher. You've just uh, up until recently been a high school principal uh, at in your mid 20s, which is pretty remarkable. Uh, 
tell us about uh, your education background and through that lens, you know, how you expect to approach this job once you win in November. Yeah, thanks, Chris. Uh, you know, I taught math and I know I know schools right now are like the battleground for culture wars. Um, and so I know that some of these extremists are going to attack me on that. And, and good luck. I taught algebra. Um, so if you can find something wrong with solving for X and uh, figuring out how to how to solve complex equations, good luck. Um, but that's what I spent my time in the classroom doing. And it really informed my work as a principal. And my work as a principal was focused around career and workforce development. Um, I got to lead an incredibly innovative school, an early college high school that was actually located at Dallas College um, in DFW. And so what our students were able to do is they were able to enroll and get their high school diploma and their associate's degree while in high school. This is a majority of students that were, you know, about 90% economically disadvantaged. And 98% of those students last year graduated with their associate's degree. That's 60 college credits. You can take those to Texas A&M. Heck, you can take those and get a job. And that's what's so cool. I had a student that took that associate's degree and he uh, joined the Dallas Police Department. And he got a big bonus because when he joined, he had an associate's degree. So again, I believe that K-12 education should not be about banning books. I think K-12 education should be about making sure the future of America is equipped with the skills they need to compete in the 21st century economy. Here at the halfway point, a quick reminder for you to hit our web store at progresstexas.org. It's always open. You can choose from Y'all Means All, Revolution, or our most popular Humans Against Ted Cruz t-shirts. They're union-made right here in Texas, of course. With your purchase, you're supporting our important work and looking great doing it. Again, the web store and other ways to support our ongoing mission can be found at progresstexas.org. Bill Birch is a career engineer running for the Texas Railroad Commission. He will bring 23 years of energy industry experience, including time as an emergency responder for the Deepwater Horizon spill, expertise of sustainable energy practices, and a sense of integrity and accountability the agency is critically missing. Bill Birch, whom we talked to about the Crane County produced water spill a few days ago, that podcast is coming soon. So Bill, in a way, welcome back to the podcast. Well, thank you very much, Chris. It's a pleasure to be back, and thank you very much for the opportunity. We're so happy to have you. Um, Let's just start with a quick introduction. Give us your campaign elevator pitch. There you go. I'm Bill Birch, your 2024 Democratic candidate for the Texas Railroad Commission, the only Democrat in the race. I am, as you said, a 23-year veteran of the oil and gas industry. I'm a third-generation driller. I live here in Polk County in Livingston, Texas, which is uh, the edges of deep east Texas near the Louisiana border. And I am running in this race because I really care about having improvements in the future of what the state looks like in the next century. It's about our groundwater. It's about our energy. It's about the earthquakes. And it is about our future together with a with reforming the Texas Railroad Commission into the agency it should be and not what it is currently, which is a bought and paid for uh, opportunity for others to basically get away with whatever they want. We'll talk a bit more about that. Uh, Bill, you're running in a contested primary here and uh, being as friendly and factual as you can be. uh, Tell us uh, why you're a better choice for uh, progressive voters in the upcoming primary. Well, unfortunately, my opponent is a lifetime Republican. Uh, There's no other way to say it. In Massachusetts and New York, since she was 18, she's voted as a Republican. And since moving to Houston in 2015, she's voted in the 16, 18, 20, and 22 
uh, and even 2022 runoff uh, as a Republican and has come out and publicly said that uh, there's nobody to vote for in the Democratic Party and they can't run. They don't run any qualified candidates. So she votes to manage the leadership in the state of Texas as a Republican. Um, there's really no other way to say it other than she's a Republican. But from my side, take away that issue uh, from the progressive side is that I see a future of the state of Texas that we have an opportunity not only to redefine the energy conversation, the energy transition that we're currently going through, but also in terms of how we're going to deal with our legacy. And to me, the environmental impact, the impact to landowners and the ability to really have the Railroad Commission be the agency that right now is the worst run agency literally in the state of Texas. The opportunities to redefine a future of renewable energy, geothermal, wind, solar, battery, and helping define the future is really the key components of why I'm running. We've said many times that the opaque nature of the Texas Railroad Commission starts literally with its name because it has nothing to do with railroads, but rather manages energy in Texas, a clearly vitally important program with a lot of money flying around. Tell us about that lack of public clarity and what you do to make things more transparent if you're elected. So the Railroad Commission name, as you just correctly said, is definitely not reflective of what it does. Originally, when it was founded in 1891, it was reflective because it was about regulating the actual railroad industry, which was an unregulated uh, industry in the state of Texas. So one of the things about it, since they've handed that over in 2005, the TxDOT now manages all of our railroad industry. So really, the Railroad Commission is about our natural energy production and transmission to the end market users. So hence, it also manages all our pipelines. And a lot of people don't know that the Railroad Commission actually has responsibilities for old mine operations, which we actually had in the state of Texas. Uh, we had lignite mining, coal mining, and we also have uranium mining, which it uh, regulates most in the sunset phase. So they're mostly in the, the closure side of it now of the mining operations. But uh, one of the things that I see as a future in the state of Texas is the ability for the Railroad Commission to manage our wind, solar, and battery installs. Because eventually, at some point down the road, there's a decommissioning phase. Now, it may not be for another 20 or 30 years, but the ability to make sure that the landowners are protected and that the bonds are paid in full and that the decommissioning side is covered correctly, just like in oil and gas or in our mining operations, we don't have an agency in the state of Texas that actually manages uh, our renewable energy resources. Now, geothermal, because it's an in-ground resource and a well-based resource, that would automatically fall under the Texas Railroad Commission because it requires a drilling permit and, and drilling technologies. But that's one of the things in terms of the agency's name change. It's come up twice in the last 20 years, and both times it has been shot down by one particular Republican senator um, who wants to keep the oldest agency in Texas name intact. Uh, and again, that opaque nature is part of the issue when it comes to voter confusion as to, oh, I have a problem with my FN crossing guard. I want to talk about such and such with the railroad. Well, it has nothing to do about railroads, right? <laughs> so we really do need to have a name change amongst many other things that have to change with the agency. But first and foremost, for people to understand that this is uh, until, unfortunately, we get the House and Senate to approve the name change, we're stuck with it. But we do have to address the fact that this is the agency that manages our natural energy resource production and transmission to market. Very good, Bill. Uh, so as we're recording this, there's been new legislation I'm sure you've heard proposed in D.C. to require Texas to connect our independent power grid to neighboring grids uh, for the purpose of having available backup power when it's needed so we can avoid another Winter Storm Uri situation, uh, which we'll recall in which uh, hundreds of Texans literally froze to death. Uh, give us your thoughts on the grid in general, how that interfaces with the Texas Railroad Commission and what your druthers would be once you're sitting there. 
Well, you know, it's really interesting. So the winter storm Uri was caused the, the blackout outages that occurred were actually due to the Texas Railroad Commission because in 2011, they were told by the federal government to winterize the critical infrastructure in the state of Texas. And the Railroad Commission refused to do so because why? It would take too much profit away from their corporate sponsors to uh, have to actually spend money to winterize the system. And 10 years later, lo and behold, surprise, surprise, we ended up with a gas outage from the freeze up of the energy transfer line, which ended up causing the supply side not to be able to deliver to generate the electricity. And so what I say to a lot of folks, it's not just the $3.5 billion bond for the short trade that occurred to cost you on Winter Storm Uri. It was the dead, as you correctly pointed out, who froze to death in their home. But it was also the $100 billion of insurance claims from the water damage that occurred that caused your property insurance to skyrocket and your homeowners are pricing increasing to increase in the state of Texas because of the water damage. So the impacts to every single Texan are literally being felt by your homeowners policies, let alone your increases in if you're not most energy customer or if you are a uh, center point energy customer. Um, in terms of the national grid conversation, look, when, when they first isolated the electrical system and created ERCOT in 1999 under uh, Governor Perry's regime, it, it wasn't a bad concept in that regards that we were able to reduce the cost of electricity. And at one point at 2010, 2012, we were at like 4.8 cents to like 5.3 cents a kilowatt for ERCOT power. We had some of the lowest cost of energy in the United States, and we benefited greatly from it. We had massive massive footprint, massive growth capacity, because we had some of the lowest operating costs for businesses and residential consumers to have electricity. But in the last 10 years since then, with the state of Texas's boom, and we've not increased our same size footage for the amount of people who have moved here, uh, we have some of the highest electricity prices in the state of Te in the United States. It's no longer the cheapest pricing. Where I think the last I saw on power to choose was like 14.8 cents to like 15.3 cents a kilowatt. So our pricing has skyrocketed in comparison to where we were just 10 years ago. And again, we're not building a system and planning for a future here of additional more people moving to Texas that is going to cause a lower uh, a lower cost basis for us. So connecting to the national grid isn't just about redundancy. It's about ability to stabilize our electrical prices. And when we have excess power supply to be able to export the power to help other people in other states to have opportunities to have lower pricing as well. So really, you know, the, the thing with isolating Texas, it, it did provide us for a short-term benefit of lower pricing, but when it came to the reliability and redundancy side of it, we no longer have it and we really do need to be connected. And again, we're part of the lower 48 states and let's be realistic, it's our responsibility in the state of Texas to help others as well. Bill, do you have any parting thoughts on the race for Texas Railroad Commission and what needs to happen here? Oh, I got a lot of thoughts, but let's just keep them up. Summary and short and sweet. Uh, you know, it's the worst run agency in the state of Texas. It is by far the least transparent. It's corrupt. It has no integrity. It doesn't care about the environment. It doesn't care about worker safety. It doesn't care about human health and conditions in the surrounding communities in which oil and gas operations work. Uh, we have left a hundred year legacy, which is unacceptable. We have significant issues to groundwater, methane emissions, climate change response in the state of Texas. And we have a commissioners, three commissioners currently who do not have the technical chops or operational knowledge to be able to do their job competently. I mean, I, I don't know what to sell folks that the, the only person who's probably more corrupt and honestly has you know, more incompetence to run the Texas Railroad Commission is Ken Paxton, but I think he's too busy running the uh, Office of the Attorney General's office. Right. I, the reality of where we are in the state of Texas is that the energy backbone is the core 
of everything we do. It's the core of our future of moving forwards and developing the state. And if we can't supply good quality, reliable energy resourcing to the market and be able to manage our cost basis correctly, Texas not only won't be an environmentally friendly state, it won't be an economically viable state to for the future of our population. And everything we're looking at in the near future of this 20 year 2196 million Texans living here, the need to have this massively larger uh, electrical footprint is critical. And we have to be the agency, the Texas Road Commission should be the agency that is leading the charge to develop the future of what Texas looks like. Wow, cleaning up the mess of the past and dealing with the current issues of the earthquakes and the over, over injection of produced water. Lauren Ashley Simmons, a challenger running for Texas House District 146, is a mom and union organizer whose platform centers public education, universal and affordable health care, workers' rights, and defending democracy. Her opponent, the current state representative, Sean Theory, votes with Governor Greg Abbott to destroy our public schools. She's also faced public scandals for voting with extremists to attack LGBTQ Texans and creating abusive work environments. In contrast, Simmons is a black, queer woman who will fight for those who are tired, frustrated, and who feel unheard by people who are supposed to be serving them. Lauren Ashley Simmons, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. We're so happy to have you. Um, first, let's just start with a quick introduction. Give us your campaign elevator pitch. Absolutely. Well, my name is Lauren Ashley Simmons. I am running to be the state representative in House District 146. I'm running because we have lost our seat in state government and it's time for us to reclaim that. Our district is an extremely blue district and it deserves to have a representative that aligns not just with the values of the Democratic Party, but a majority of the voters who live in 146. I am, you know, as a constituent, I was extremely disappointed in the positions that the representative took in the last legislative session. But as a candidate, I'm extremely excited about the opportunity and the possibility to represent our district on a higher level and also, you know, play a little defense. We are a minority party and I would simply be a junior member um, of the state of the House of Representatives for the state. But what I can ensure is that we will not concede an inch if it's going to put our district and our people in harm's way and that we're going to fight for public education. We're going to fight to expand health care access. We're going to fight the abortion ban and we're going to ensure that our community is safe and not in harm's way. Great stuff. And we'll elaborate on all of that uh, over the next few minutes. Uh, so, Lauren, you're unique amongst all of our Progress Texas endorsees that we're talking to for this podcast and that you're actually running against a sitting Democratic incumbent. Uh, this year, we're seeing a lot of infighting and primary challenges on the Republican side, which has mostly been engineered by Governor Abbott and Attorney General Ken Paxton to limit future resistance from the more reasonable elements of their party to their radical agendas. In this case, with you, we're talking about a Democrat who has repeatedly caved to those same conservative agendas. Tell us a bit more about uh, State Representative Sean Theory's voting record in particular and why you think it's time for a different Democrat to take that seat. Absolutely. Um, so as a person who, you know, has done some work around legislative advocacy within my labor organizing, I would say that, you know, for the most part, it seems like, you know, Sean Theory, you know, to some point was a decent enough Democrat. Right. Um, you know, there were some things that, you know, as a labor organizer, of course, we might be sticklers about, you know, just kind of being very, very corporate friendly. But overall, you know, at one point it we were pretty much fine with her representation. I think what really 
made a huge difference was this last legislative session, those two particular votes, one on the book ban, but also the vote to ban access to gender affirming care for for children was just such a stark contrast to what we in the district felt like we would want out of a representative. And on the other side of that, it was just the lack of accountability that um, made a lot of us feel really uncomfortable. It wasn't just myself, um, so much so that one of a few of the local Democratic clubs, Maryland Democrats um, specifically, actually, you know, formally sanctioned her because they had asked her to come to a meeting. They wanted to follow up about those particular votes and why she took those positions and she just refused. So beyond just the votes themselves, it was just the idea around a representative who does doesn't want to actually represent the constituents that put her in office. I mean, even as going as far as to, you know, lock her social media for a time just came off to me personally as somebody that says, look, you know, I'm in this seat and it's not much you can do about it. Um, and, you know, I just, you know, as somebody who has always been a person who has just kind of been of a, you know, not an, I won't say an activist, but an advocate and just very deeply ingrained in my community. I felt like, well, you know what, if nobody else wants to run, I'll raise my hand and step up and make sure that at the very least, it's very hard for her to go back to the legislature and that it would be me going to the legislature in her place. Lauren, you have extensive experience in organizing and working with labor unions, like you said. Give us a rundown of your political experience and how it prepares you to make that leap into the Texas legislature. Absolutely. So a lot of work that we do, obviously, is kind of just one on one conversations with our you know, worker leaders and really trying to bring them from a person who just has a question about is something going wrong on my job to a broader understanding of their place in our society. And a lot of that is being civically engaged. And so, um, you know, I always kind of say that organizers are dreamers. We always have these big pie in the sky ideas about what can be done and what we can accomplish when we work together. And some of that, you know, is a little different when we're doing our legislative advocacy work. We know that we'll present these, you know, really progressive policy ideas. And we know that once they get to, you know, the House of Representatives or the Senate side, that they're going to get whittled down, you know, a lot. You know, it's going to be a lot of the things that we would love to see taken out. And so having that experience and knowing that we can dream really big and we can do what we can to do as much for our communities as possible. But having that very realistic understanding of this has to get through 100 people on one side and 13 others on the other side. And it's going to take us reaching across the aisle and making friends um, and, you know, in some places where we may not align on anything else is something that I've always had to take into account. Um, an example where I've seen that in, in the work that I've done is I want to say maybe around 2017 or 2018, Greg Abbott had this, you know, it, it was almost the way he felt about vouchers about ending payroll deductions for union members. And that would have just completely decimated unions because um, the way the easiest way for people to pay into their union is through their paycheck. And it was us on the labor side and the progressive labor side and, and Democrats who were really, really fighting. But we got some help. We got some real strong support from some of those rural Republicans, particularly the ones that live in areas where the school district is the big employer. There were some rural area superintendents that stepped up and said, look, leave the unions alone, leave the teacher union alone, because we will not be able to attract talent in places like Jasper or Beaumont or Nacogdoches if teachers cannot come here and join some type of association or organization. And so um, understanding that is something that I would take with me into the legislature. And again, 
all workers are not Democrats. All workers are not left-leaning progressives. And so a lot of the work that I've done in my career is really trying to bridge the gap and say, look, we might not agree on a lot of other issues, but I'm talking to you about your job and I'm talking to you about the way that you vote does make a difference and it does have an impact on the work that you do. Can we have a conversation? Um, and like I said, I've always, and I don't want to say try to stay away from like the personal part, like knowing too much about elected officials, because sometimes it can make it hard to talk to my people about voting for somebody based on their platform. But what I have been able to do is, is spending the time that I've spent in the Capitol is really seeing those inner workings, really seeing those relationships. Um, the, a representative that I really, really admire is uh, Representative Ann Johnson, for example, because she is a fierce advocate, very bold when she needs to be. She led the Kim Paxton impeachment trial. But when it comes to being able to get things done, like adding some life-saving amendments to, you know, our just very draconian abortion ban, she was able to get that done. And that was primarily through the relationships and the respect that she has from folks on the other side of the aisle who typically may not, you know, align with anything else that she has, you know, to say. But in those moments where she was able to use her professionalism and use her expertise, she got something done that actually saved lives. Very, very good. Tell us uh, your impressions of the state house in general, you know, outside of the obvious ways that you would vote differently than your opponent. Uh, tell us how you see that body overall and what kind of, you know, atmosphere exchange, I guess, or change of, of, of tone that you would want to bring to the house. Absolutely. I think what gets lost in our conversations around politics, and this has always been difficult for me as an organizer because I work so closely with the people whose lives are most impacted by what happens in Austin. The abortion ban is an abortion ban for people who can't afford to leave. Minimum wage not moving an inch since 2009 is an issue for the types of low wage essential workers that I organize, right? So when you have a certain level of privilege or wealth or access, you're kind of shielded from what happens in the capital. So for me, it has always been a little frustrating when people kind of frame it as like this game of, you know, who versus who. What I would like to help people understand outside of the Capitol and even, you know, my future colleagues, should I be elected, is that government serves a purpose and government should work. It should function for the people. And we get, you know, and a, and a lot of it has to do with kind of our political culture here. Texas is a big red state. We love to tout small government. But when government does not work for the people, for the taxpayers, I find that really problematic. And I don't think that matters which side you lean on, you know, politically, you should want our grid to be able to hold up to, you know, extreme weather. You should want to be able to access, you know, insurance and home repairs should Hurricane Harvey or or something similar happen. You should want, you know, your mail to be delivered on time. If your house is on fire, you want the fire department to get there as quickly as possible. And I think sometimes this is why we see some of the voter apathy that we see or just the disconnect between people like us that are very dialed into politics versus some of our friends who are, uh, and it happens to me all the time. I have friends who will call me on election day and they'll say, Hey, now what's going on? And you know, I've been gritting my teeth and sweating for the past six months and they're just like, Oh, you know, I'm going to go vote today. But it's because people see the dysfunction between the parties, but they also cannot in their own actual lives, see where government has made a difference, good or bad. 
Um, and I think in a place like Texas, it's really important to note that, you know, as much as people go out for every four years for presidential elections, we have a lot of lot of work to do to get people engaged in these district races, in these municipal races. I was really disappointed in our turnout in the Houston municipal elections. A few thousand people made a decision for millions of people, but it's really hard to get people to get up and do that extra step of voting because it is a burden, especially in Texas, when they just can't trace back to how does this change my present material condition? And that's a conversation we have a lot with folks who, as an organizer, who will say, well, you know, I've gotten this bill passed. I've gotten this bill passed. And I'm like, look, that's awesome. But what does that mean? And what does that look like in the lives of everyday people who don't have time like me to go to the Capitol or read every bulletin that comes out or attend these different town halls? And so, in my opinion, we have to do the work, like I said, in these particular races like mine and like others before we can even think about having a statewide victory. You have to get people to go vote in their, you know, House of Representatives, you know, race or their state senator race before we can think about having a Democrat, you know, win as a senator or a Democrat governor. Um, and I think it really starts by showing the example that government has a function, government has a purpose, and we are going to work together to get things done for our community, which is why those votes that the incumbent took were so disappointing, mainly because they did pe they put people in harm's way. But also, you can bring me the most conservative person in our district or anywhere else. And I just doubt that those two bills were legislative priorities when you think about all of the other things that should be happening and that we need from our government. Lauren, give us your parting thoughts for the Democratic voters in your district. Why do they need to pick Lauren Ashley Simmons over sitting representative Sean Theory? Absolutely. I think as far as, you know, I've shown with my campaign with the, you know, a number of organizational and individual endorsements that we've been able to garner. It's not just the idea of, that I am a great candidate because I really do think that I'm a strong candidate and I'm going to do a great job representing our district, but that people from the outside as well as the people in the district can see that we are not being represented at this point by somebody who aligns with Democratic Party values and again, the values of the voters in the district. We live in a state where our districts are gerrymandered. So this district was built by design to be a very strong Democratic district. It is a very blue district. And so as far as you look at our finance reports, I am funded by small dollar donors in the district and people throughout the country who understand that we need a real Democrat in office. On the other side of that, when you look at the incumbents reports, majority of their donations come from Republicans or right leaning pets. The decent family out of Dallas is a billionaire Trump supporting family who is anti-abortion, anti-public education. And so when you think about who this person feels accountable to, it is not us in 146. And so I decided to get into this race as much as I love the work that I do. I'm an organizing director. I've worked really hard to get there. And in some ways, I would probably have to leave that behind. But it's because I understand what our district is asking for and what the people of our district need. And so again, we have to do the work to make sure that we are electing representatives that align with our values. It doesn't make any sense to have Representative Jolanda Jones on one side of us, Representative Ann Johnson on the other side of us, and then for our district to be represented by somebody who is so misaligned value-wise, but also lacks the accountability to face us when they've made decisions that are an opposite of what we believe and what we feel. Can we be very, very clear about what you just said right there, that Sean Theory is funded, at least in part, by literally by Republican money? Can you can you be real specific about that for the listeners? Yes. 
so at one point um, when our reports, so the first financial report that we um, that was public, I want to say we had raised about the same amount of money. She had raised 53. I had raised 52,000. 43% of her donations came from the decent family and a pack that the decent family gives money to. And, you know, I just assumed that an incumbent would have tons of money, of course, a very large war chest. But it was very startling to know that while we're raising the same amount of money, a lot of her donations and support come from people that just do not align with our values. So for me, it was very unsettling because the lack of accountability made sense. It's not a lack of accountability. It's you're accountable to somebody. It's just right. not us. Right. And even more so, um, we were looking at these most recent reports. So the 30 day report came out and she had like a $5,000 contribution from another like individual Republican. When you look up his record, he gives money to Trump, gives money to Greg Abbott. And so I think it's a, it's a stark contrast in, who we are aligning ourselves with. But again, it's more so about the voters and the people who are in the district who have an understanding of that. You know, look, I know I live in a big red state, but this district that I live in is very, very blue. And I want to make sure that the person that we vote that I'm voting for is taking care of business in Austin that centers the values that we have. And I think that's the other part that people have to understand. We are not there and we're not present in the Capitol with our representatives every minute of every day. And so we vote for people that we feel like we're able to trust. So when they are in those rooms and when they do have to do a little wheeling and dealing and reaching across the aisle, we know that they're going to do their job and not concede anything that, you know, will put us in harm's way. And like I said, again, you can look at the examples of work that other representatives do that get bills passed and they have to, you know, reach across the aisle versus being totally misaligned with us as voters in our district and being aligned with a party that has gone against so many of the things that we value and hold dear to us. And I think in my mind, it, t it tells me that this is a sign of what's to come. We, you know, they got two votes out of her. What does the next legislative session look like? What does the 89th legislative session look like? now that they have given her even more money. Um, and I know people kind of lean, you know, different ways on charter school, you know, funding, charter school PAC funding. And I said, look, I will never, you know, get in, in the way of a parent making the best decision they feel like they need to make for their children. But when we look at structurally, we have to make sure that, you know, we're holding them to the same standards as public schools. And in my mind, again, I'm wondering why are these people so invested in maintaining her in this seat specifically, what are they what do they stand to gain? And what do we as a district stand to lose? Michelle Vallejo, Sam Epler, State Representative Julie Johnson, Lauren Ashley Simmons, and Bill Birch. All awesome Texans stepping up to run in super important races, all enjoying our endorsement here at Progress Texas. Now, early voting in the primary is underway as of Tuesday, February the 20th. As of recording time, that's just a few days away. So as we said at the open, do your homework and make sure and get it done. Super, super important to vote, especially in this low turnout, high impact sort of situation. With fewer Texans expected to vote, your vote carries extra weight. So please do make sure it happens. February continues and throughout the month, we're asking you to show Progress Texas some love by becoming a recurring donor like our friends Seth DeCray, Oswald Straub, and Leslie O'Loughlin all have during our February member drive. We're looking to add 29 new recurring donors to support our important work this election year, one for each day in this leap month. Seth, Oswald, 
Walton Leslie. We appreciate your help very, very much. Your donations are always welcome at progresstexas.org. If you're enjoying our podcast, a super easy way to join the fight for progress is to share our podcast feed with your friends and family. If you're opinionated like we are, please drop us a review and a five-star rating on the podcast platform of your choice. And thanks again for the support. Happy boating. We'll see you next time. The Progress Texas Happy Hour is a production of Progress Texas, a rapid response media organization promoting progressive messages and actions. Find us online at progresstexas.org and on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. The podcast is produced by me, Chris Mosier, and our featured music is by Walker Lukens. Please be sure and subscribe to the Progress Texas Happy Hour on the podcast platform of your choice. Take a moment to leave us a review if you've enjoyed the show, and be sure and tell your friends about us. Thanks for listening and for all you do to press progress forward here in the Lone Star State. We'll see you again next week.